Hello and welcome to Exploring Global Problems, a podcast where we talk to academics from Swansea University whose groundbreaking research is tackling global challenges from health innovation to sustainable futures and the environment, from digital technologies to clean energy. My name is Sam Blacksland, and today I'm joined by Shireen Doak, Professor in Genetic Toxicology and Cancer. Shireen's research focuses on the reduction, refinement and replacement of animals in safety testing. To tackle this, Shireen and her team are developing 3D advanced cell culture models that represent the human liver, skin and lungs. Professor Shireen Doak, welcome to Exploring Global Problems. Thank you very much, Sam. I'm really looking forward to talking to you all today. Well, it's great to have you. Can I start just by asking you to introduce your research? Tell us what you do. Tell us what the aims of all of it is. Yeah, absolutely. So, so I've got a, a particular interest in developing a range of different culture models. So it's where we culture cells in the lab that represent different organs of the human body. And normally when you culture cells, you, you would culture them flat at the bottom of a flask. But what we're trying to do is culture them in a more dynamic 3D way so that they are much more representative. And then that allows us to, to use those models to test and evaluate the safety of a range of different chemical compounds and nanomaterials is another area of particular interest for us. But because we're using these more advanced culture models, the likelihood is that the data that they generate is going to be much more reliable than our standard test systems. And safety for safety for what exactly? So in, in my lab, we're particularly interested in DNA damage, which is also known as genotoxicity. So it's where if you're exposed to, for example, a chemical or a substance that's either in our environment or in consumer products that we buy, we, we want to make sure that they don't interfere with our DNA in any way, because if a compound does cause DNA damage it has the potential to induce cancer further down the line. So what we tend to focus on is looking to see if exposure to a particular agent causes DNA damage and at what sort of levels as well, because if we can advise where safe exposure levels are, then it just means that we can remove the risk surrounding exposure to those agents within substances that we may well come into contact with during our daily lives. It's a fascinating topic and, and doing some background reading before you came on, I just, you know, I, I thought how amazing it all sounds. But for people like me, I guess, who are who are not specialists in this area at all, maybe we should just start with establishing some some definitions. So you talked about advanced culture models. What exactly does that mean? Okay, so when you grow cells in a lab, normally you have a, a, a flask or a Petri dish and you have one cell type that's grown flat at the bottom of a flask. And that's how cell culture has been conducted for, for decades. But clearly having one cell type flat in a flask is really quite far removed from the very complex 3D human bodies that we have. And so what we tend to find is that the behavior of cells cultured under those sorts of conditions doesn't always replicate how cells behave in the human body very well. So what we're trying to do is culture multiple cell types together. So not just one cell type anymore, but, but several different types of cells because they communicate to one another. But we're also trying to do that in much more of a 3D structure rather than flat so that we can start to, to move much more towards culture systems that look far more like 
some of the organs in our body. Great. And I promise we'll come back and talk in much more detail about the human organ aspect of all of this. Just another one of the terms that I'd like to pick up on, nanomaterials. Now, I think I understand what this is about, but can you tell us a bit more about what, what they are? Yes, absolutely. So, so nanomaterials are actually really exciting materials. They're born out of the, the nanotechnology industry, which is really expanding and growing at quite a rapid pace at the moment. And basically, that industry is is very heavily invested in developing these nanomaterials. And, and as the name probably suggests, these materials are incredibly small. They're they're actually less than a millionth of a meter in size. They're they're, they're certainly very very <laughs> tiny <laughs> tiny structures. But the beauty of them is that they've got very unique physical and chemical features, which give them new and improved properties that are really substantially advanced over and above many of the materials that we are used to dealing with in our day-to-day lives. So for example, you can have some materials that are incredibly strong, but very, very light because of their size. And so for example, in the automotive industry, where you now have a material that could potentially replace the use of steel or minimize the use of steel, you've got a lightweight product, but still has the same strength. Another area where you tend to find nanomaterials at the moment is in a lot of our electrical products because they're highly reactive but small. So it allows us to miniaturize many of the day-to-day electronics that we would use. So for example, your mobile phones, your laptops, it's what allows them to become much smaller and, and, and lighter. And so what we're finding is that these nanomaterials are are really edging their way into quite a wide range of industries, right the way through from automotive and and electronics, right the way through to sports and healthcare industry too. So they really have very, very wide ranging applications and they're, they're quite exciting at the moment. If you'd like to visit us and find out more about studying at Swansea University, visit swansea.ac.uk forward slash open days to book your place. Yeah, and uh, you you say exciting. Uh, Obviously, your research focuses on the challenges they may cause, but it's worth stressing, I think, isn't it, that they bring a lot of opportunities, they bring a lot of positive aspects to to life and may even in themselves prove solutions to, to problems that we face. Is that fair to say? Yes, absolutely. And I think that's one of the key things which really makes understanding the safety aspects important because we certainly don't want to reduce the use of these nanomaterials and consumer products. We want to enable their their application and their use because they really do have so many benefits, but we just have to do it in in a safe and sustainable way. And that's where understanding the impact of exposure on human health and the environment is also very important. And the two things really go side by side. Understood. Just in terms of size and scale, you know, you said a, a millionth of a metre. Now, for some people, that's going to be a very hard thing to conceptualise. It certainly is for me. I, I find it quite useful when people, for example, talk about particles, you know, being, if you put it next to a balloon, it's like putting a balloon next to the world or something, you know, th- those those kinds of ways of demonstrating how small <laughs> they are. Is, is there another way of, of showing us just how tiny these materials are? So perhaps given the current climate, everybody very well aware of of viruses and and Mm. just how small they are. Viruses are actually on the nanometer size range. So when you're talking about these particles, you're talking about particles that have got similar sizes to viruses. Ah, that's that's very useful to know. Thank you. In terms of 
the aims of your research then, uh, Shireen. You've talked about the three R's, haven't you? Which yes. are not the tra- which are not the, the traditional three R's. Uh, There's some, <laughs> something else. So do you want to expand upon that? Yeah. So the, the three R's stands for the reduction, the replacement and the refinement of the use of, of animals in science. The cosmetics industry really took a huge stance on this back in 2009, where they, they banned the use of animal testing for safety assessment of cosmetics. And, and I think personally, I feel that that was a, a really important move to shift the field away from, from that sort of reliance. And, and what that ban did as well was really accelerate the development of the 3D culture models that I mentioned a little earlier. And so it really did accelerate the development of those sorts of models and, and change the way that we think about safety testing too. It's such an emotive topic, isn't it? Testing on animals, particularly yes. in a in an animal loving country as well. Would, would you say this is one of the main impetuses behind your research to actually try and move away from the from the animal testing side of things? Yeah, for me, it's personally it's it's a it's really something that I advocate. Mm. But at the end of the day, when you compare the animals that are often used for safety tests to to humans, they're still not an ideal model in themselves anyway. If you if you take a, a rat or a mouse and the the way that they break down chemical compounds in their body, it's actually quite different to how our human body functions. And so it really is important for the science to to catch up and to close that gap to allow us to fully move away from them. And, and that's where development of more human-like culture systems really comes into the comes to the fore. We're probably jumping around here just following my my train of thought, but going back to the the nanomaterials and and talking about the exposure to humans and the effect of of that. How how can exposure to, to nanomaterials affect human health? So at the moment Exposure to humans is is probably quite minimal. And, and part of the reason for that is because the materials are being approved in industries where direct consumer exposure is not high. So for example, the, if I go back to the, the mobile phones that I mentioned earlier, the materials would be embedded in those mobile phones. So we as consumers are not actually exposed to the particles themselves. Where you do have more potential for exposure is actually the workforces that are producing those products because they will be handling the raw material. So workforce exposure is is, is one key area at the moment where there needs to be some care taken. And of course, many of the workers in those industries have to wear a, a degree of PPE in order to protect themselves. But we do have nanomaterials in things such as toothpaste, sunscreens. So there are examples where they are already in products that we would use, but rest assured that those ones have been evaluated and, and that's why they are there. And so the safety frameworks that we have in place are really very good at making sure that that what we are exposed to as consumers has been rigorously reviewed. But where we need to be careful is that because the nanotechnology industry is, is really starting to boom, they, they want to use nanomaterials in a much wider range of products that would, without a doubt, benefit our daily lives. That The safety assessment side has to keep up with that. And that's probably where it's sort of slightly lagging behind at the moment, which means that it takes longer for those products to get into the marketplace then. Mm-hmm. And I'll ask about the safety in a second, but how do we think they might be potentially harmful to humans? 
So because of the size of these materials, they can get into compartments of our body that other materials can't. Mm. So for example, if we just take inhalation, if you inhale large particles, they normally get stuck in all of the, the lovely mucus that lines your airways quite high up at the top. And so you can quite easily cough them up or or even swallow it to some extent. But with nanoparticles, because of their size, they're able to actually get much deeper into our lungs. They've got the potential to get into the small sacs right at the bottom of our airways, which are called alveoli. And, And that's the site where the air, the oxygen in our air is able to move into our bloodstream and the carbon dioxide moves out. Again, because the particulate size of the the nanomaterials, they have the potential to actually move into our bloodstream as well to cross that biological barrier, which larger particles just wouldn't be able to do. And once that happens, you then have these materials able to, to traverse around the body much more readily. And so that's where there are some concerns because of the, the size. They can certainly get deeper into our body than perhaps materials that we might be more used to being exposed to. If you'd like to find out more about our research at Swansea University, visit swansea.ac.uk forward slash research. And you say concerns, obviously no absolute definitive answers at the moment, I assume, because this is also new and, and research on it is still ongoing. Yeah, absolutely. So one thing with with part with nanomaterials and nanoparticles in particular is that many of them they don't break down very easily in biological systems, so in our body. So if we're exposed to very low levels but over an extended period of time, then the chances that they could accumulate and our understanding of the the long-term impact of that accumulation is is a particular gap that we're trying to fill with some of the research that goes on in in my group as well. Because if we understand that, then that also will help us to build a a picture of the safe exposure levels, if you like, to to these materials. Yeah, totally understood. Without obviously being over the top or trying to scaremonger or anything, what what do we think some of the worst consequences or or possible side effects could be from from exposure to to, to these to these nanomaterials? What what do we fear? Okay, so perhaps going back to my point earlier about one of the things that we're particularly interested in is, is DNA damage. And what we do within my research group is look to see whether or not these particles are able to get into cells. And if they do, do they cause DNA damage once they're there? Is that damage at a low enough level that it can be repaired? Because if it is, then then we don't have a concern. But if it isn't, and we do start to observe DNA damage accumulating in cells, and if that damage accumulates over time because of continued exposure, then that's when you do have the potential for, for cancer development. Now, at this point in time, there's not a lot of evidence to suggest really that, that nanoparticles would do that. But equally, when you've got any form of new development, understanding DNA damage and potential for cancer development is an incredibly important aspect of safety assessment. And that's really what we do within my research group. So we will look at that to determine whether or not it is a risk or if not, then then we've got some confidence around the use of that material then. Great. That's, that's fantastic. Thank you. You mentioned a couple of times these these safety tests. So how, how do they work in practice? 
With safety testing, what we tend to do is look at a very wide range of, of what we call different endpoints. So, so different types of damage that could arise following exposure to a substance. I've mentioned DNA damage several times because that's my pet area. That's uh, mm-hmm. where my main research interest is. But we also look at toxicity, which is cell death. In addition to that, we look at a process called inflammation. So sometimes you can be exposed to something which causes an inflammatory response in the body. And and that's the body's defense mechanism to try and rid it of of whatever's actually entered. But whilst inflammation is a a defense mechanism, if you've got long-term inflammation, then that in turn could have its own disease consequences that we need to be careful of. When you're looking at the safety of whether it be a chemical or a nanomaterial, there's actually a very wide range of different consequences that we look at in order to get a complete picture of how a substance may cause harm and at what sort of exposure level. Because a lot of the time, if you're exposed to anything at a high level, even aspirin, if you've got high doses of aspirin, that's going to be really bad for your health in the long term. But if you've only got low levels of exposure, then it's something that you can tolerate, but still have a benefit from it as well. And so it's just trying to get that balance really between making sure that you've got a low enough exposure level that, that's not going to, to harm your health in any way, both over the short term, but also thinking about long term as well. And I've read that you're working on tailored nano safety tests. So do you want to tell us a bit more about that? Safety testing is something that has been in place for decades. Essentially, anything that we're exposed to in a consumer product has gone through very rigorous safety testing. And that's not only consumer products, but medical healthcare products, substances that are in our various manufacturing industries. But historically, what we've been very used to handling is chemicals. And so all of our safety frameworks are tailored towards chemical testing. Now, when nanomaterials came along, the assumption was that you could treat them in exactly the same way as a chemical. But unfortunately, what we found out relatively quickly was that because nanomaterials are very different to chemicals, they behave differently in some of our safety testing systems as well. So this meant that our safety testing systems weren't robust enough to tell us whether or not we had concerns following exposure. And so certainly what's been happening in my research group, as as well as many others globally over the last five to 10 years, is that we've been trying to take our standard safety testing approaches that we would use for chemicals, but adapt them so that we know that they're reporting appropriately for nanomaterials. So we now know that they're what we call nanospecific, that we can use them for nanomaterials as as well as for chemicals. Great. Let's move on to the bit that really interests me or sort of excites me in particular, which is this whole 3D advanced cell culture modelling. I mean, is this really cutting edge new stuff or has it been around for a while? A little bit of both, to be honest with you. So Mm. in terms of developing these 3D models, uh, that is something that's been around for a while. And it's almost been a little bit of a, a holy grail for us to be able to move away from animal testing is that you need essentially mini organs in a plate. That, that really closely represents the human body so that we'd have much more confidence in using those than, than animal testing. So the 
models that we've been focusing on within my research group have been the the human skin, the lung, the GI tract, and and also the liver. And and what we've been doing is really working with different ways to construct a, a 3D model as well as trying to mix different cell types together, because sometimes you'll find that that two or three cell types just will not grow together at all. One will overgrow the other. And so there's been a huge amount of development just in terms of working out how to combine those cells in the ratios that represent what we see in the human body, but also to have a 3D structure that, that stays there and doesn't just break apart within days or weeks. And so whilst it is an area that's been ongoing for quite some time, there's still really a lot of room for, for, for further development to, to get our little mini organs in a plate. If you're a teacher and you'd like our help with talking about this topic in the classroom, visit swansea.ac.uk forward slash teachers for more information. Now, if I if I walked into your lab and looked into one of these Petri dishes or whatever, I assume I'm not going to be looking at just a shrunken version of a, <laughs> of a lung or a liver, am I? But so what, what would I see? Okay, so so we have a couple of different ways of growing these these little models. One example is our, our liver models. So with the liver models, basically all we've done is taken the cells that we would normally grow flat at the bottom of a flask. So it's exactly the same cells. But what we do is we seed them, we call. We, we have a number of cells in a tiny little droplet of media and we flip the plate upside down. And what happens then is that the cells can actually no longer stick to the bottom. They all cluster at the bottom of the droplet. But when they cluster, they automatically form 3D spheroids. So they're like a small ball of cells. And it's fascinating, really, because just by simply tipping the plate upside down, all of a sudden, these cells will automatically form into a little ball that already looks much more similar to the the human liver than when they grow flat. But the beauty is when they connect to one another in this 3D ball shape, it changes the way that they they function and the way that they communicate with one another. So one of the things that, that we look at in our group is what's called gene expression profiles. So we'll look at genes and have a look to see how high or low their expression level is, which translates into how much protein they'll produce because it gives us an idea of how well those cells are functioning. And by simply growing the cells in this 3D structure, we can already see that the expression profiles of certain genes actually are much closer to the levels that we would see in a human body than when they're grown flat at the bottom of a flask. So cells seem to like to be in 3D as opposed to to 2D. And I can see, obviously, where this comes into substitutes for for animal testing, obviously, because you can use these these culture models. Yeah. So in terms of how we expose the models to our test agents, that can actually be much more similar to the human situation or even an animal situation. And uh, a nice example there is with our, our lung models. So Going back to sort of our standard practices, when we have 2D cells, they're actually grown under liquid. Um, It's called media, and that media feeds the cells. It allows them to grow. 
But with the 3D lung structures that we've been developing, we've actually got the media underneath the cells so that the cells themselves on top are exposed to air. And what that means now is that when we expose those cells to our test substance, we can actually produce an aerosol. So we're spraying an aerosol onto the surface of the cells, which is much closer to how we would breathe in that particular substance, whether it be particles or droplets in our in the air, for example. So our exposure system now is much closer to the human situation. And that causes quite a substantial difference in the data that we see when we're looking at the behavior of the cells. And so that then allows us to, to have some confidence really in terms of the, the model system that we're using and the fact that it's, it's a better representation, which minimizes the need to have to test in animals then. So going back to my original point, th- these really do represent human organs to, to a large extent. Yes. Yeah. That, that's the direction that we're trying to move them towards. Don't get me wrong, there, there is still a lot of room for improvement because for many of these systems, we perhaps only have two to three different cell types. Okay. And if you just think of the human lungs, you've actually got 40 different cell types there. So, so we are still constrained in that respect. But each of these little steps that we're making does have a huge impact in terms of, of how we're better able to mimic the human system. And if we can improve that, then that's what's going to allow us to, to really have more reliance on these new forms of tests rather than the older way of doing things. In an ideal world, how would you want to see it improve? What would be the next perfect steps along this road? So one of the things that we probably do at the moment that isn't very representative is that that we we grow these organs, um, mini organs, in isolation. So we will have one set of flasks that will have our liver models, another set that would have our lung models, another one that would have our skin. And that means that if you have a substance to to test, you've got to test it in multiple different advanced culture systems. So in an ideal world, what would be a really, really dramatic improvement would be for us to try and connect these organs together into a single system that would actually represent, for example, if you inhale something, it would have an impact on your lungs, but it would go into your bloodstream and and then subsequently to your liver. So if we could start to be able to connect those organ systems together into a a miniature human body, if you like, then that would really allow us to to, to take a huge leap forward in terms of only using these sorts of test systems rather than anything else. Yeah. And you could do more and you could replicate a a full working human body. Is that what you're saying? Exactly. Yes, exactly. That would be um, a really, a really big improvement for us. So your little mini 3D livers could actually be groaning like mine sometimes does after a <laughs> after a raucous weekend. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> um, you talk about this replacing animal testing in the long run. Again, in an ideal world, how long do you think it would be before we, we could this could overtake and well and replace animal testing? Um, we probably are still talking 10 plus years. And the only reason for that is that developing the models is only one part of the story. Once you've got a, a really nicely functioning model that you can apply for safety testing, it then has to go through rigorous assessment 
by multiple international labs to show that they can replicate the data, they can all undertake the test and come out with the same results. And that's that sort of validation study, it's called, really does take time. We're lucky at the moment we've had some really generous funding from the European Commission on uh, one of the projects that I lead called Patrols. And, And Patrols is a project that includes got 24 partners from 13 different countries. And that project is entirely geared towards developing these new models specifically for testing nanomaterial safety. But as part of that, what we're also doing is passing the models around all of the different labs to see if other people can repeat what we've developed in our lab, for example. And it's only through those really wide international collaborations that we can generates large-scale data that would be convincing for risk assessors who who have to look at safety data and and really make a decision on whether or not something should appear on our shelves. They they have to be convinced that a test is reliable. And so that's the sort of stage that we're at at the moment with some of the models that we've developed. But it, it does take time for the legislation to change to allow for that. You've, you've preempted what I was going to talk about, which is great because everyone in academia to some extent works with other people and forms networks. But I presume that your, your research in particular is very interconnected with lots of other groups and institutions, etc. So w- what are those networks like? Yeah, so the networks are really quite wide. And, and the reason for it is that safety frameworks are normally continent-wide. So, for example, in Europe, you've got multiple European bodies that oversee safety of different sectors. So, for example, there's the European Food Standards Agency, got the European Chemicals Agency. Each of them are responsible for governing the safety of the various products that, that we're exposed to on a daily basis. So, In order to really drive change and for those agencies to really be accepting of a new approach, you can't be an individual going to them and saying, I've got a really great idea and here it is. You have to go as a a really large international collective. And so the project that I mentioned, Patrols, really does support that kind of activity because we have got partners in multiple countries, not only in Europe, we've also got partners in Korea, in Canada, in the US, because nanomaterial safety is a global issue. And and whilst we have our European regulators in the States, they've got the FDA. And each of those regulators always look to, to see what the others are doing to learn best practice from one another. And so in terms of international collaboration, it really is absolutely vital to be able to make a big change. And so that's where trying to make those connections becomes really important in terms of driving science forward. And I think we've also seen that really nicely in terms of the the whole COVID response as well. It's it's never an individual. It's a, a really big collective that helps to drive that change forward. Yeah, do you find yourself on you know a daily, weekly basis talking to colleagues, collaborators from different countries? These networks must be quite must be quite tight. Yes, they are. And to be honest with you, it's it's 
brilliant because you know that you're talking to scientific minds across the world that have got all sorts of different perspectives. But that's really exciting because you'll get input into your discussions from an area you just never really would have thought about. They're certainly very dynamic conversations, which I I thoroughly enjoy. But we have those conversations on a weekly basis as a minimum, actually, because trying to coordinate an international project means you have to have really strong communication between all of the partners. When you're all in different countries, you've got to make sure that you're working together and those barriers in terms of distance can really be quite difficult to overcome mm. sometimes. But to be honest with you, the, the remote working that, that we've all certainly gotten used to over the last 18 months or so is something that's really been embedded in my life for the last five plus years. Right. Um, because it's the only way that you can keep connected with international collaborators Whilst we've really missed having our face-to-face gatherings over the last 18 months, it hasn't actually slowed our work pace at all because we've been used to constantly talking to each other over platforms such as Zoom and and, and other similar teleconference um, platforms too. It's, it's, all, it's, it's sort of normal practice for us. Was there quite a lot of international travel though before you know, March 2020? Yes, it was huge. And it was to the point, actually, that we did all used to ask questions about the carbon footprint that we were probably leaving as well, because I was certainly traveling internationally at least once every three weeks. And I was just one out of a whole team of people. So we did used to travel a a huge amount because it, it was the only way really that you start to build relationships with people. And it's only through having tight knit relationships that you can really exchange scientific ideas openly with one another. And so it was really important in terms of establishing those connections with each other. But, but yeah, I think we've all learned another way of doing things over the last 18 months. Well, at least your research wasn't directly related to climate change, so you didn't have to defend yourself against accusations <laughs> no. of hypocrisy straight, <laughs> straight up. <you> know. <laughs> um, something's just come into my mind, which is that obviously there's a huge ethical conundrum about doing animal testing and research on animals. Is there is there anything or any ethical considerations or any controversial things you run up against with doing you know the alternative with doing the the cell culture models, or is that or is that pretty kind of universally accepted as as kind of as acceptable? So the the, the biggest issue that we tend to have is that in order to be able to culture cells long term in the lab they have changed. They're not the same as the human cell that they originally came from, from the, from the human body. They've diverged. And so the usual obstacle that we hit is you're using a cultured cell. How representative is that really of the equivalent lung, liver cell, and so on in the human body? And that is something that can be challenging to overcome And so what we're doing is trying to find a a happy medium, really, that allows us to to still have confidence in the tests that we're running, but knowing that there are still some limitations and limitations that hopefully through further research and further development will overcome with time. Let's talk about you directly uh, for a bit, Shireen, and and yeah, just just sort of focus on your your career and your career development, I suppose. Because when you when you began your academic journey, you, you probably didn't 
expect you to be working on this sort of stuff precisely, I, I, I presume. So, you know, where did you start and how has your career developed? No, absolutely not. I think in, in terms of working in the three-hour space, it's it's always something that I have had an interest in anyway. I didn't, in the month of Sundays, think I would actually ultimately end up working in this area though. So so I did my undergraduate degree in genetics because genetics and and DNA was always something that absolutely fascinated me. And so I, when it came to, to choosing what I was going to do at university, I decided to opt to something that, that I found interesting. So I did my degree in genetics. And then at the end of that, you sort of have your usual conundrum. Do I go out and find a job or do I try and do an further higher education degree. But when I did my genetics degree, I was very lucky. And then my third year, I was allowed to do an extended lab-based research project. And that research project at the time was actually on trying to develop a skin culture system to support plastic surgery. So it was a trying to develop something that could be used for plastic surgery purposes rather than the, the standard techniques that they were using at the time. And it absolutely captured me. So I, I worked on that project for about four years and, and uh, sorry, four months. Um, but what that made me realize was that research was where I wanted to be and in particular medical research. So I then did a PhD and my PhD was in cancer biology. So at the time I was looking at the genetic changes that underlie esophageal cancer, which is which is cancer of, of, your, of your gullet. But following my PhD, I had an opportunity to do postdoctoral work. So, so to undertake research projects that were in uh, the safety assessment of chemicals, but again, looking at DNA damage. So whilst my PhD had been more in the cancer research side of things, I was able to use the same sort of techniques and apply them to see how chemicals influenced DNA and DNA damage. And really everything beyond that sort of all converged together because I decided that I wanted to stay in research. I wanted to stay in academia but I had to start coming up with my own research projects. And so that was when I sort of cherry-picked the things that I'd learned over the last sort of five to six years, the areas that I really enjoyed to work on and try and bring those together to, to undertake my own research projects. And it really flourished from there. And how long have you been at Swansea for? Ooh, Far too long. <laughs> it's, ne it's, ne it's never too long. Far, far too long. <laughs> so I actually did my undergraduate at Swansea. Um, so I've been there for over 20 years now. And I, I am actually quite unusual because normally people do move around, certainly yeah. after their first degree, if not after their PhD. But I think I was just really lucky in that at the time that I was looking certainly for academic jobs, the, the medical school was only just being established in Swansea and the university itself was going through quite a change in terms of the, the medical school being established and they're uh, wanting to be much closer links between medicine and engineering. And because of the, the research background that I'd had, it was just a really exciting place to be. And so I opted to stay and I was lucky enough to, to have the opportunity to stay because uh, very Various research positions came up 
which I was awarded. And so I've, I have been there for quite some time. But it's one of the things I really like about Swansea is that there aren't barriers between departments. And so if you want to go and use a piece of kit in engineering or speak to an expert in a field that's slightly different to yours, they're really accessible. And that's what makes the research continually exciting because you're always learning, you're always learning from one another, and it allows us to really be quite dynamic and move with the times as well. What we call interdisciplinary conversations and collaborations. Absolutely, yes. Yeah. Yes. Which which I guess this conversation is is an example of too, because I'm learning lots as well. I'm not from this area <laughs> of expertise. Um just just one last question about you. You you did some of your growing up in the Middle East, didn't you? I I, I wonder whether that had any impact in the way that you you think about you know your your studies and you think about your interests yeah I, I think it has and I probably would never have realized it at the time but but yeah I, I grew up in the Middle East I was I was there until the age of 15 I was in an environment where as a female you weren't really expected to get a job so so part of the reason that I left at the age of 15 was because my education actually finished over there um, and I had to come back to the UK to do my A-levels. So I think one thing that it did really instill in me was quite a competitive side to to, to fight for what you want, I think. Mm. And that's definitely come through in in my research, without a doubt, because research is a highly competitive field. You have to really fight for research funding because it's quite scarce. So I think that certainly gave me quite an edge. But I think the other thing that it gave me was an appreciation of different people in different backgrounds and and how you can build relationships with them as well and 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 really how that diversity enriches your life because I was in a I was in an international school so it was a, a British international school which had 63 different nationalities in it so from a very young age I was exposed to really quite a substantial level of diversity and I think when I look at the collaborators that I have now and and really reaching out to people all over the world it's not something that phases me at all it, it almost feels normal to some extent because that's very closely tied to the upbringing that I had as well yeah it's it's it certainly had quite an influence without me really realizing it at the time Although we should say you were born in Wales, so that's not a Middle Eastern accent. That's not a Middle Eastern I, accent no. you've got. <laughs> <laughs> no, it certainly does cause some confusion sometimes. <laughs> no, fair Listen, uh, Shireen, there'll be, there'll be some people listening to this, or there might be lots of people listening to this, who think what you do is really it, it's both very interesting, but also quite cool. You know, it's a it's it's cutting edge. It's interesting. What advice would you give to people who are interested in going into this field, in studying this topic? I mean, you've already mentioned that research can be quite competitive, uh, and research funding is is sometimes hard to come by, and that's absolutely true. Mm-hmm. But what sorts of other advice or encouragement would you give? Maybe you know, particularly young people who who are interested in all of this. I think one of the key pieces of advice I'd give is perseverance. You've you've really got to not give up at the first hurdle. Because of the level of competitiveness and the nature of research funding, you will always get knockback. So I've, I've lost track of how many times I've tried applying for a grant and they've said no for one reason or another that I've always disagreed with, but it still doesn't get away from the fact that I didn't get the funding. But something else came along around the corner. So certainly not letting knockbacks get you down. Use it as an opportunity to sort of 
reevaluate what you did, how you can improve, and then just try and try again. But I think the other thing is talking to people, because if it's something that you really want to pursue, is what you really want to do, then then talk to others in that area. Talk to the various researchers that are that are leading that element of work because they will always do what they can to, to help you along. And I think that's the one thing that I've certainly learned in my career is that people always want to help, but you do have to ask and you've got to be forward enough to, to go and have a chat to them about it. So so never be afraid of, of doing that because nine out of 10 times, they'll do everything they can to support you. Wise words indeed. Shireen, it's been, it's been so, so interesting. Thank you for, for talking us through you know, your, your research. I've, I've certainly learned a lot and I know people who are listening will have too. So thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed the talk, the chat. To find out more about Shireen's work, please visit her staff profile page on the university's website. To find out more about this podcast and Swansea University's research, visit swansea.ac.uk forward slash research. That's all from us today. Thanks for listening. And thank you again to our guest, Professor Shireen Doak. If you've enjoyed this episode, please follow. I'm Sam Blacksland, and that was Exploring Global Problems from Swansea University.